0: Governor Eric Greitens called lawmakers back to Jefferson City again to debate legislation aimed at restricting abortion. And one of the things on the agenda is undoing a St. Louis ordinance protecting people against discrimination if they've had an abortion or take birth control. The sponsor of that measure, Alderman Megan Green, joins us on the next edition of Politically Speaking to break down the special session and what it will mean for St. Louis. So let's hit the music.
1: This is the Politically Speaking podcast, a candid conversation with the Show Me State's biggest
0: political newsmakers. I'm Jason Merzenbaum.
1: And I'm Joe Manis. That's Eric Greitens, Navy (laughs) SEALs running for governor. And I'm really, really glad to be on with you, Jason and Joe.
0: I'm going to
2: push back
1: And
0: welcome to the Politically Speaking podcast, the only podcast about Missouri politics that guarantees that you will succeed. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio today is...
1: Colleague Joe Manis, and I have no idea what you're talking
0: about. That is is actually a reference to a sign that is along Hampton Avenue at a vape store. And the other side of the sign says, why not vape? And it's a question I've never been able to answer. Um, I'm not a
1: smoker, so... uh,
0: Neither am I. And... Joining us for the second time, but the first time as an alderman, alderman, alderwoman, because the first time I think was like a week before you were sworn in, we have as our guest.
2: Alderwoman Megan Green in St. Louis City, 15th Ward.
0: And uh, before we uh, pepper you with tough questions, just remind our listeners of uh, the boundaries of your ward and which neighborhoods it takes in.
2: So it's essentially Tower Grove South um, from uh, halfway through Tower Grove Park to Chippewa on the south side, and uh, South Grand to Morgan Fort.
0: As I, uh, I found out uh, before the show, Uh, your ward is where I get my glasses. And I actually got these glasses a couple of weeks ago after my other ones broke. (laughs) I I strongly recommend Lucas Optometry. They are a great 15th Ward business.
2: We have a lot of wonderful businesses in the 15th Ward. We are very lucky.
0: So we brought you in today to talk about state politics a little bit, but also Aldermanic politics later in the show. Um, The reason why I mentioned state politics is right now in Jefferson City, the legislature is debating a multifaceted bill that restricts abortion in a number of different ways.
1: Yeah, now one thing to point out, this is we're near the we're getting into the home stretch of the second week of what is expected to be a three week special session and it costs the state well when both uh, chambers are in, roughly close to seventy thousand a week. So this particular special session will be particularly expensive. And <coughs> The bottom line is the governor called it because there was a number of abortion-related bills, uh, mainly to restrict or over, or regulate um, the uh, abortion, cl- the remaining abortion clinic in the state, and they did not get through the special, uh, the regular session for various reasons. Uh, and then a couple weeks ago, the governor announced that he was he had been under some pressure from some legislators who were upset that the stuff had not gotten through the regular session, and wanted to bring it up again, in part because of two things. A, a federal judge ruled the end of April, beginning of May, that the uh, U.S. Supreme Court decision that affected the Texas regulations also affected Missouri. And so Missouri had a number of regulations that had been in in place, in fact, in some cases 10 years, that were tossed out. Uh, So the General Assembly wanted to act In response to that, at least the abortion opponents wanted to act uh, to that. The other reason, and one of the reasons you're here, is because the city of St. Louis passed a provision to its anti-discrimination ordinance that added uh, women who've had abortions, women who are birth control. Did did it also include pregnant women?
2: Includes pregnancy, miscarriage, using IVF. Uh, abortion and contraception
1: okay so so basically almost any reproductive um, aspect of a woman's life yes and that was added to the anti-discrimination measure the state that the city has and basically it prevents landlords or employers from discriminating against any of the women in these particular classes the some legislators contend that a it's overreach that it's not in line with with state law B, there are also some legislators and the governor who contend that this is a, an attack on pregnancy resource centers, which are basically uh, centers that are supported by abortion opponents. They get some state money and uh, counsel women against having abortions and try to offer alternatives. So I'm just putting this in, kind of laying this out so our listeners know as we go forward. And making Green was one of the key sponsors of... The the city ordinance in question.
0: So I want to start off. What was the impetus behind this ordinance? Did you have a lot of instances where people were discriminated against for their employment or their housing because of their reproductive choices?
2: So it w- it was a couple of things. Uh, first off, I think it's important to note that St. Louis wasn't the first city that has done this. So uh, Boston and D.C. and the state of Delaware all uh, all did this before
1: before we went down this path. Now, some question... Well, when I was checking into Boston, it's unclear if Boston's done it or if they're talking about doing it. Boston's passed. Okay. And second, uh, the opponents say that St. Louis's is actually more expansive. Just, we used, I'm just passing that uh,
2: on. I know, I know. There's a lot of misinformation out there okay. um, about what we did because we we actually you know, modeled it after um, what was done in Boston and in D.C. Um, very similar language. Um, so that... So we we ended up uh, the the third city in the country that did this. Um, One of the main reasons to decide to do this was because of something called the Russell Amendment. Um, It was an amendment that was tacked on to a defense spending bill at the federal level. And basically that amendment uh, allowed defense contractors to not hire someone because they were using birth control. They had an abortion. They were in a same-sex marriage. um, They had a child out of wedlock. It, It had this whole laundry list of things. That Amendment did not pass this time around. But what we often see is when something comes up like that, then an organization like ALEC um, will take that and start to introduce model legislation across the country to say, hey, now it's okay to discriminate on uh, the basis of uh, using birth control. And when we've already seen, you know, the Supreme Court decide in the Hobby Lobby case that employers don't have to cover birth control, um, if it's against their religiously held belief, you know, we feel like this is the next step. Um, And then the second piece of it, until you actually have something a part of your non-discrimination ordinance, you have no idea how prevalent anything is, because then we don't track it as a city. So what this is doing is saying, you know, we think that this is important enough that women have private rights um, to determine what they do with their own body, that regardless of you know what their employer or their landlord says, that that they need to have that individual freedom, and um, and so this allows us to be able to track. Should that not? Now, the had
1: there been, had you been hearing reports of cases of discrimination, is this is this reactive or preventative? Is basically what I'm getting. It's at. it's
2: mostly preventative. Although I, I will say that since this passed, we've had uh, several folks that have come forward and said, yes, this is this has happened to me. Um, the most egregious one, who's been working with with NARAL, um, is a case of a woman who had a miscarriage um, and ended up getting fired from her employment because um, of dealing with all of the medical. Complications complications from it and then some of the psychological um, you know impacts of it and was missing work and and ended up getting fired as a
0: result. Now, I have read the the bill that is still in legislative transit right now and I've read it pretty carefully and what I have been hearing from people is that the bill essentially voids the ordinance. But from reading the text, the only thing that I saw is that It exempts pregnancy resource centers and says that a landlord can't be forced to essentially, you know, uh, a landlord can't be forced to rent to an abortion clinic or something along that lines. It did not appear to me that it voids the entire ordinance.
1: Well, some of this is the product of some late night negotiations and the state Senate side. The original bill was much broader. But during these late night sessions, because they were trying to avoid a Senate filibuster by the Democrat minority. So that's sort of uh, the, the the setup here. Uh, Alderman Woman Green, what's your take on what the bill says now? I mean, my take is
2: exactly like Jason was saying. It doesn't seem to have a whole lot of impact on what we passed here at the local level. Um, they're basically seeking to further deregulate crisis pregnancy centers, which already have very, very lax regulations around them. Um, and... Uh, the portion about not uh, requiring a landlord to rent to an abortion clinic, that is already exempt in the bill that we passed at the local level. Um, And there's already religious exemptions in there, and a lot of these crisis pregnancy centers that are religiously affiliated would already be exempt under our local ordinance.
0: So is it your belief that this bill doesn't actually affect Your ordinance very much.
2: Correct. I I think that we are spending $20,000 a day basically to do nothing um, to our local ordinance. Um, What what it is doing is allowing a bully pulpit for the governor to um, basically say that he's doing something when, in fact, um, what they're pushing does very little.
1: Now, the archdiocese was pretty vocal. I mean, you know, the archbishop came out uh, to blast the uh, provision shortly after it went into effect. If it exempts uh, religious organizations, why was the archdiocese so vocal against it?
2: You know, what's interesting is the exemption language that we included in the bill was given to us by the archdiocese. And we put their exact language in the bill. There was one sentence that we did not include, which would have made the entire ordinance contingent upon state law, which obviously we weren't going to do. Because
0: that will never happen. Because that will
2: never happen. Um, and so, um, But all of the religious exemptions that are in there were given to us by the archdiocese. I, I think that at the end of the day, um, the archdiocese is going to be opposed to anything that has to do with women's health. Um, and we need to just take that at at face value and know that no matter what we put in that bill, because it had the word abortion in it, they were never going to be on board.
0: So I'm going to play a clip now from Governor Eric Greitens before the special session occurred, and he was asked about the, the question of local control, because in the past couple of sessions, the legislature has taken it upon itself to basically try to invalidate things that St. Louis or St. Louis County has done, this was his response to that question.
1: Look, I think, I think that we absolutely
0: need, need to be supporting people all over the state of Missouri. I want to support local control, but when we have radical politicians who wanna do things like attack the work of a wonderful organization like Our Ladies Inn that is helping pregnant women, helping them and their newborn children. We have to stand up and defend them. We have to stand up and support them so that these organizations which have been driven into court by these radical activists, they know that we're gonna support them and we're gonna have their back. So I think that he was referring to people like you. First <laughs> of all, is that is that flattering that you're called a radical politician or, or, Rad- or, or radical or, activist? Or, or, or is that does that make you sad? Or? I mean, I, I don't think that
2: standing up for women's autonomy is radical. And I think that if we, um, I think it's very scary that we have a governor that thinks that advocating for women and, and for women's health and their ability to make their own decisions is radical. That mm-hmm. should not be radical. Uh, are we in the Handmaid's Tale? I mean, this is a. a little ridiculous here. Yeah.
0: Well, I do I do want to touch on his point, the, the whole aspect of local control because I think that a lot of St. Louis area lawmakers have become very agitated when the legislature you know tries to repeal your ordinance or tries to strike down the minimum wage law, which appears to have happened. Um, a lot of proponents of those will say, you know it's good to have uniform regulations across the state. You know, uh, they they would probably argue in this instance that if you look at the composition of the Missouri General Assembly, it's very much filled with people who oppose abortion rights. And that is the will of the statewide voice, so to speak. What's kind of your take on this? Because I'm sure that you're not pleased that the legislature is taking this tack, but it seems to have become a trend.
2: I think they're doing it because we're winning and um, not just in in St. Louis, but in cities all across the country. The preemption is, you know, the new ALEC tactic. Now, just
1: so our listeners know, when you refer to ALEC, you're referring to an organization uh, that the full name is the American Legislative Exchange Council. Correct. It's basically a a conservative group. They come up with um, proposed uh, changes to state or local laws. They focus mainly on state and local um, statutes and laws. And they
2: basically uh, give model policies, you know, to states to introduce. And we, I mean, we've had cases in Missouri where the state name isn't even changed on the bill because they've just borrowed it from Ohio and given it to Missouri and said, you know, put this, it, put this in there. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically, you know, we see groups like ALEC who... Um, who are afraid of the progressive policies, the pro-worker policies, the pro-women policies, the pro-immigrant policies that are coming out of our cities right now. And so they have to figure out a tactic to stop that. Because what happens, what we know is cities are incubators. And um, and we're the first place that policy gets tested out before it expands statewide and nationally. And we've seen that with the fight for 15. I mean, five years ago, nobody thought that any you know place would have a $15 minimum wage. And now we have a a number of cities across the country, uh, and that that fights their entire narrative, and it fights, you know, their corporate backers who don't want to see uh, higher wages paid, who don't want to see more employee benefits, that that want to be able to have, um, you know, terminate somebody under discriminatory means if if they so choose. And and so we have, you know, I think we have a responsibility as cities to stand up and say, no, we, you know, we cannot allow them to impose their views on us. And um, and so, you know, we have to continue to, to fight these battles at the local level.
1: Now, um, I did this story on local control about a week ago, and um, one of the key messages from the legislators I talked to, aside from what Jason was saying, if they think there needs to be uniform standard, is that they feel that it just... Um, Makes, they say that it hurts the state's economy because many of the uh, economic growth is often in urban or suburban areas. I mean, how do you respond to that? Because this is the same line you're hearing in some other states as well. So, I mean, how do you respond to that? I mean,
2: that? I think what we see is discrimination hurts economic growth. You know, the number of of folks that I, you know, come across in St. Louis City who will say, you know, I've stayed here for five or six years. I really like it here, but the state is just so backwards. It's not accepting. I'm moving out to the coast. You know, people want to live in a place where they feel safe, they feel protected, they feel included. And when our state government is continually passing laws to marginalize people who are immigrants, people who are minorities, people who are women, that makes it a lot harder for us to sell that Missouri is a place where people should choose to locate.
0: Now, and I make this point often, and I don't mean to sound like a broken record, but one of the things the legislature also preempted that Democrats supported was killing St. Louis's ordinance in 2013 on a foreclosure mediation. And some feel that Democrats got behind that in the legislature because banks and real estate entities are very powerful. And there was not a lot of outcry locally. There was some outcry locally, but not nearly to the effect. Based off this minimum wage situation and this abortion situation. I just want to bring that in for context. That was before your time, so I'm not asking you to align on that.
1: And some could argue, without getting in too much in the weeds, Mm -hmm. that in the case of the mediation stuff, and I'm not, but is that some of it had not gone into effect yet? So in some cases, the public may not have been aware of what. They were losing or, or yeah, gaining. Yeah, I I agree the, with that. But it was still by the legislative action. It
0: was definitely upending local control, and Democrats Correct. supported it. Right,
2: and I I think that you know if we look at the long game here, I think that uh, the Republicans' willingness to disregard local control is going to be their Achilles' heel. Um, because when, you, when they've traditionally been the party of local control and always fighting against this big, bad federal government overreach, um, but then suddenly they're doing that to local municipalities, I think we're going to get to a point where that does not sit well with people in rural areas. And um, and it's certainly not sitting well with a lot of folks in, in the, the urban areas right now.
1: Now, now, do you see that any of this is related, fair or unfair, to what's going on in Washington, where well, there seems to be somewhat of a cultural debate? I mean, uh, President Donald Trump, his support was not in the cities. His support mm-hmm. was in, in the rural parts of the country and Some suburbs, but the point being that when you look at where his core is uh, for him and for the Republican Party, it's increasingly rural uh, with some uh, suburban blocks. So does that contribute to what's going on here in Missouri, do you think, or not? I
2: think it does, and I think it's uh, more extreme here at Missouri, uh, since you know our governor seems to be a very close friend of Trump. Um, you know, even he called this special session, and he wasn't even there for it. He was hobnobbing with uh, President Trump out in in D.C. rather than you know coming and aligning the troops in Jefferson City. And so, you know, we have to really ask where our governor's allegiances are. They seem to be more in in D.C. than they do in the state of Missouri right mm-hmm. now.
0: That's actually a great segue into a similar topic, but a a, a slightly different direction. As I'm sure that you know, because I think that you retweeted the article, I wrote an article on Sunday um, talking about whether the state Democratic Party should be accommodating to local candidates, especially in rural state legislative districts who oppose abortion rights. Now, I want to be clear. I don't think the state party can, you know, smite these candidates down and say they can't run. But given Amendment 2, where parties play a much bigger role in supporting legislative candidates, they could certainly decide, no, we're not going to spend $30,000, $40,000, $50,000 if you you hold this position, especially since resources are going to be finite and they have to target certain areas uh, strategically. So I'm actually going to play a clip now from Chad Perkins. He's a Republican. He's from Bowling Green. And I asked him if socially conservative candidates on the Democratic side would fare well um, in places like Northeast Missouri or otherwise.
1: It's true that I think that
0: local Democrats and the local Democrat Party probably need to find their own place within
1: the party or uh, run the risk of saying, you know what, locally, we have trouble winning even when we have great and strong candidates because the
0: nationwide party just doesn't represent the views of the people which we try to represent. So that point I actually m- may actually correspond with with your thought process in that if Democrats run candidates who are a lot like Republicans when it comes to social issues, voters will just vote for the Republicans because it just doesn't seem sincere on the Democratic side, whereas we have seen instances like Claire McCaskill or Mel Carnahan or Jay Nixon, who have done very well in rural areas, supportive of abortion rights, and maybe voters there disagreed with them, but at least respected that they weren't trying to pander. I'd, I'd be interested to hear your view on this because you are heavily involved in the state party. You're involved in the platform committee. You're a DNC committee woman. And I know that this debate has also risen to the national level.
2: I mean, I, I think— Monday morning quarterbacking, you know, off of the November election, a lot of the feedback that Democrats got is that we didn't stand for anything. And and I think that voters respect you more when they know what you stand for. Even if they don't agree with it, at least they – they trust you because you've been forthright enough to say, you know, yes, I believe in abortion rights, and you might not agree with me. Um, these are my reasons; they might be different, you know, than your reasons. Um, but we can agree to disagree on this. I I think that it's dangerous when we start to pander as a party and move farther and farther to the right, um, to the point where it's unclear what it means to be a Democrat.
1: Now, some actually have said that probably the thing that may have hurt. I mean, forgetting, you know, the FBI and Comey and all that, is that there was a perception uh, that, um, A, that Democrats weren't campaigning that hard in rural parts of the state or rural parts of the country, and and that many were assuming that they don't have to win a majority. They just need to win enough votes in in those parts of the country. And the perception was there were still a lot of retired labor workers and others who would still vote Democratic. Well, many of those people. I mean, I'm from uh, rural Indiana originally, and I've looked at some of the county numbers, and the flipping between t- 2008, when Barack Obama was on the ballot, and and uh, and 2016 was huge. I mean, I mean, there was a lot of people who voted for Barack Obama in the rural parts of Indiana that I grew up in who ended up voting for Donald Trump, not for Hillary. And one of the contentions was that she didn't talk enough about economic issues. And the reason I mention that is because that was the same complaint on the state level. Even though um, former Missouri Attorney General Chris Coster, who was the Democratic nominee for governor, spent a lot of time courting rural um, agricultural groups, did a lot of campaigning on that. He and Jason Kander, who's running for the U.S. Senate, were on a bus going around the state. But there was still that narrative, even if it was unfair, that was still driven. So as someone in your position who's in Democratic leadership, how do you counter that? How do you make sure that people hear your economic message? And uh, because some say that that's actually what was the it was less the social issue debate than the lack of someone countering the promises that uh, now President Donald Trump was making.
2: So I think it's a combination of things i I think first um Democrats didn't come to play and in November we did not field Democratic candidates in two-thirds of state rep districts why and um, lack of candidate recruitment lack of organization amongst the state party uh, and and since then we've changed a lot um, we have our committees filled for the first time in um, five or six years where we actually have you know a group such as myself traveling the state to listen to folks what what are their concerns, what does our platform need to look like, Um, actually talking to voters between elections, not just showing up, you know, a couple months in advance and saying, hey, vote for me and donate. Um, We're actually out here doing the groundwork in the interim. And that's something that hasn't been done. Um, I think in terms of the the economic message, I I think you hit the nail on the head. Um, We haven't, Given um, an alternative to the Republican Party. We haven't said, you know what, health care isn't working as well as we would like it to under the Affordable Care Act, but the way that we need to strengthen it is by going to a single payer system, not by repealing it. We haven't been forthright in, and even, you know, owning abortion issues, because bo- abortion issues at their core are very economic issues. Most women who choose to have an abortion or to use contraception are doing so because of economic issues, not being able to afford of family, um, not uh, being able to have time off work, when we don't have, you know, universal paid family leave, um, all of these things that make it very difficult to have a child. And so, you know, as a Democratic Party, I think we have to get more comfortable talking about these things and saying that, you know, at the end of the day, uh, if if you want to be, you know, a a pro-life party, like the Republicans purport to be, then you have to support folks when they do choose to have a child. You do have to support them economically with living wages um, and good health care and basic human rights that that the Democrats are good on. We just fail to own it.
0: So going back to my, my original question, if we have a scenario in a year and a half or so where some of these rural districts do have Democratic candidates, but a lot of them do not support abortion rights, what do you think the party should do about it? Do you think that they should be you know funded like any other candidate? Do you think that they should get the organization organizational support that somebody who supports abortion rights gets or should they be treated differently? Because I ask this question because you know there's a long way to go before the Democrats even come close to taking back the Missouri legislature. But if they if they winnow down the numbers by adding people that don't support abortion rights, Bills like they're being talked about in the special session are going to pass by the same margins, essentially. Mm-hmm. So I, I would be interested to hear what you think the Democratic Party as a whole should do if that happens, because, as I mentioned on the outset, they have a lot more money to spend on candidates. And right. I, I'd, I'd be interested to hear your, what you're on it. I mean,
2: I think that we have to not be hypocritical as a party. And, um, and what that means is if we are really going to own our kind of economic populism, then that means... Supporting abortion rights, Um, because, like I said, it it's you know boils down to a very economic issue for a lot of women, and um, and I think it has to be a part of our party platform. Um, Now, and I I think you raise a very good point. If you know what is the point of just getting you know Democrats elected if they're not going to you know sway the vote on some of these harmful anti-woman laws um to me then we might as well just elect republicans just like why would we you know elect a democrat that's not good on labor issues we wouldn't Mm -hmm. and so we're not having that conversation about labor issues but for some reason we are about women Mm -hmm. and i think um you know if we really are going to be a party that you know is standing for equality then we've got to own these issues and not be afraid of
1: it now, do you see, as said, because in the rural parts of the state, just using that as an example, um, where there does, so you're basically saying it should be a litmus test, A. And B, are there, is there support out there? I mean, it, there were some who would say that the younger uh, voters, Republican or Democrat, tend to be more... Uh, uh, libertarian when it comes to social issues you know they there in fact I mean Trump used to be so I mean the point being that that was not their key thing so do you think that that's going to help the Democrats in rural Missouri or is it going to be I mean as Jason uh, points out where some are going to say well we don't care what they say on the economic issues because if they're not with us on abortion or gun rights we just can't support them
2: I think most people aren't single issue voters Uh, I think that there's a small contingency that is, but I think that most people look at, um, you know, the totality of what somebody stands for. And I I don't think that one issue is going to make or break a lot of folks. Um, We also have to recognize that there are some voters we're just not going to get, and we have to be okay with that. Um, But what we need to be doing as a party is expanding the electorate. You know, the the biggest group of people um, in this last election were people who didn't vote. And so that gives us a lot of folks to connect with, to talk to, to uh, educate about the issues and get on our side, rather than always thinking that it's a battle between stealing Republican votes over to the Democratic side.
0: So I want to hone in the conversation in the last few minutes a little bit more locally. Um, the St. Louis Board of Aldermen has undergone a pretty big change. I think about there are six new members now. There'll be another new member after the July special election. in the 24th. So that's almost a quarter. So, and uh, there's a new mayor who's a former mm-hmm. colleague of yours? Um, I'm interested to hear kind of your feeling about the newly composed board of Aldermen at how it's interacting with the mayor because and I said this on a previous show I don't I know that there are factions on the board of Aldermen. I don't necessarily like to say you're part of the progressive faction because I don't think that people that aren't in that are conservative or whatnot, though that's typically what it's called. I I think we should probably have a contest to name the different factions like the, I, I suggested that your, yours could be like the super awesome faction. And your, I the like other, that. The, the, <laughs> su- the other one could be the super awesome <laughs> one. I'm, I'm being a little <laughs> facetious. But my point is, what's kind of your feeling on how the Board of Aldermen is after the election cycle?
2: I think it's really exciting. Um, I think we have a lot of new blood who's really interested in working on policy and Um, interested in working on issues and not necessarily beholden to all of the old ways of doing things, you know, particularly aldermanic courtesy. I, you know, I think that's something that has held this city back when we're unwilling to challenge a development project um, or tax incentive that's occurring in somebody else's ward, um, even though it has citywide implications. And so I think it's really exciting seeing so many new uh, really policy-focused uh, people uh, joining the board. And they're also very, you know, equity-focused. You know, whether it's somebody who was elected on the north side or the south side, um, all of the new guards seems to be very committed to, you know, racial justice issues, to economic justice issues, um, to simple ideas of fairness. And I think that's really exciting.
0: I, I brought this up before the show, but my alderman, Tom Oldenburg, of the 16th Ward, I mentioned the 16th Ward almost on a daily basis on this show. Um, you know, the 16th Ward is, has probably more Republicans in it than any other ward, maybe the 12th Ward. And it, it does lean more conservative. And I would not say that Alderman Oldenburg is a, a liberal or, you know, left of center person. But he has been put on committees that deal with neighborhood development, that uh, that, uh, that deal with housing and urban development and I think that he is very much willing to work with other aldermen to make sure other development in other parts of the city goes well and I think that's kind of an example of the collaborative nature that I'm seeing and as a city of St. Louis resident who's seen like just factional wars and political mm-hmm. squabbles I think that's a that's a positive sign but do you think that some of the battling and and acrimony that it's sometimes known that the Board of Aldermen will eventually return despite the era of good feeling right now.
2: I mean, I think that there's still going to be a bit of a battle between, you know, what is the role of an alderman? You know, are we a legislative policymaking branch? Are we constituent service focused? Um, what is it that our role is? And I think that we're seeing a lot of the new folks that are being elected are are saying, you know what, we have not been a real policy-making legislative body for a long time. And, and that has held us back in a lot of ways, and so um, I think that that there's still going to be a little bit of you know contention among us until we figure out really what what is the role and what is what do you, you know people in the city expect from us as a legislative body now. Um, but I, I think it's a very exciting time.
1: Now, do you think some of this may be affected? I mean, the board of by the soon change within a few years, where the board of aldermen will be reduced in size. Does that sort of affect some of the dynamics?
2: I mean, it it definitely could. It'll um, be interesting to see, number one, if that actually goes through. I, you know, I have a feeling that there will be quite a few lawsuits around it. Um, You know, personally, I would like to see a citizen-led commission draw the lines. I do not think it should be a political process, and I have a lot of concerns about the board um, or the mayor's office being involved in the drawing of those lines. And I would think that the more that we can put that process in the hands of the community, uh, the better that process will go.
0: Uh, What's kind of your impressions of the mayor so far? I know you didn't support her. You were a big Tashara Jones Mm -hmm. uh, fan. But I think that some of her early moves, well, I don't think that they have completely been popular among supporters of Treasurer Jones. Some of them have been, like when Chief Dotson was gone in 24 hours, I think a lot of people that did not support Lida Crewson were very pleased about that. Mm-hmm. With that as a backdrop, what's kind of your impressions of her first few weeks in office?
2: I mean, I think she's definitely making some good moves in terms of hires. You know, bringing on Nicole Hudson, um, I think, was a great, great addition. Um, she had been with uh, Forward Through Ferguson. So, you know, ensuring that we are putting racial equity at the front in our decision-making. I think um, as much as I was sad to see him go, taking our uh, legal counsel from the board, uh, Tim O'Connell, who is also an extremely, you know, bright, forward-thinking uh, man, I, I, th- I think that all bolds really well. Um, I think at the the part of, you know, if you're looking at the police chief though, Yes, a lot of folks wanted Dotson out. Um, I think there's a lot of concern that his replacement, um, the interim chief, isn't much better. And uh, and when he came out wanting to equip uh, police officers with assault rifles, that definitely did not go over well with a lot of folks in the the activist community in in particular. And so I th- I still think that you know the the hardest thing to overcome really is you know, the crime issue. And what we're seeing still from Mayor Krusen is, you know, more police, more cameras. And um, and I think that that's a very um, outdated point of view for how we need to address our public safety issues in the city. And I imagine that until that discussion plays out and we really figure out um, what holistic public safety means for us as a community, there's still going to be a lot of uh, challenges for the new mayor in, in getting buy-in.
1: Uh, just, I mean, without getting too much in the weeds, but is there a detail or two about how you would approach public safety that that you think would be? better than what she's proposed so far?
2: So I think you, you have to look at our budget. I mean, right now we spend 53% of our budget on public safety and 3% on health and human services and expect to have good outcomes. We have a heroin epidemic in the city that um, we basically are putting no resources Toward, and we know that that the heroin trade drives a lot of our crime, um, whether it be property crime of people who are addicts who are trying to steal something so that they can sell it and get their next fix, or whether you know it's gang activity that is is funded through a lot of the drug trade. Um, we need to get innovative with with how we you know address that and actually look at some of the root causes rather than always. Um, doing this reactionary policing
0: model. I know that the Board of Aldermen will be considering raising certain types of taxes to deal with the police pay issue uh, because St. Louis County passed a sales tax that will add more officers and raise salaries. And I, I can kind of understand the pushback among many in the activist community against hiring more police officers or spending a lot more money on pay. But kind of conversely, I could also see a danger of a lot of people leaving for St. Louis County, many of which have established very close relationships (laughs) with neighborhoods, and then kind of replacing them with people that don't have those ties. So with that as a backdrop, do you think that there can actually maybe be some consensus on the pay issue, given that it kind of also affects the whole relationship building aspect that a lot of people on the progressive activist side want to do?
2: Yeah, I mean, I I'm gonna I guess correct you on on one thing. Sure. I don't hear a lot of backlash from the activist community mm. about increasing salaries. Okay, I mean, people who are involved in the activist community are also part of the fight for fifteen. Mm-hmm. They, you know, they're fighting for living wages. They underst- And that's why
0: I was asking and yeah. to make sure to clarify. But continue. Um,
2: you know, they they understand that we need uh, to pay people well if we want good quality employees. I don't think anybody um, is pushing back on that. I think where we get pushback is on the need for more officers. Um, we have the third most police per capita of any city in this country, um, behind only New York and DC. If you put the, the white shirts into it, um, we are number six in the country. So we still have very high staffing levels. I think what that shows us is that our strategy is not effective. And, um, and you reach a point of diminishing returns if you just continue to add more police without a real effective strategy for, uh, for dealing with our crime issues. Um, I think where we're going to get the pushback um, is the fact that it's a sales tax and we just raised sales taxes. And I think that folks are feeling very um, burdened by the taxation in the city right now and as much as we want to pay officers more i think we need to find a funding mechanism that does not disproportionately impact the poor
1: now you know there had been talk at some point of making it a property tax i mean this was early on although things have changed but now one of Krusen's arguments has been uh this was during the campaign event and you know this this is just for our listeners was that she was contending that because that a lot of police are working huge amounts of overtime because there's just not enough for the various staffing that the city requires so regardless of wh- how the city ranks with other cities i mean her contention is yeah but we need x number for this and that and the other and what what we're doing is having a bunch of guys that are working and women working 12 18 hour days i mean on a regular basis with little time off, so they're working six and seven days a week. How would you counter that if you don't add more police?
2: I think we need to look at what police are doing right now. I mean, we, we have a contingency of police that are constantly you know, uh, dealing with the homeless issue downtown. I don't think the job of police officers should be following around the homeless population. That is not um, a public safety issue. Um, and and I think that those resources could be put you know somewhere else much better. Um I think we also need to look at bringing non-traditional people into the police department. Tashara Jones talked a lot about social workers. I know a lot of the officers um, in in my district are being asked to do things that police officers should not do, whether it's handling you know, neighbor disputes about parking or, um, or, uh, trash being dumped in different areas. I mean, there, or even people with mental health issues that, um, that their neighbors don't know how to deal with and are calling the police on them. We're asking them to do things that are not a part of their job. And so what we need to be doing is instead of adding more police is figuring out what are the skill sets that we need to bring in to really address those issues. And I think social workers is a big part of that.
0: Before we end the show, I would be remiss not to ask this question. Since you came on the show last time, you won two elections um, because three three elections (laughs) um, against what I would consider pretty well-funded, strong candidates. Has there ever been an alderman in recent memory who's had to run as many times in such a short <laughs> amount of time as you? By the way,
2: I have not, um, you know, come across another person who has. I definitely have to say, you know, I've gotten very good at running for office. Well,
0: that was going to be my question because I've heard your name circulated as somebody who might run for St. Louis Board of Aldermen president in a couple of years. I know it's 2017, 2019 mm-hmm. is a eternity away. I wanted you, if you want to on this show, address whether you're going to officially announce that you're throwing your hat in the ring to that.
2: I mean, it, it's something that I am strongly considering. I think a, a lot of folks know that I have not made an official decision. Uh, I think what's what's clear is that we need a different type of leadership at the Board of Aldermen. And whether that's me or that's somebody else, um, I, I haven't decided.
1: Well, Now, have you talked to State Senator Jamila Nasheed, who also has been actually has officially put her mm-hmm. name out?
2: She definitely called me right when she was going to announce asking if I was planning on running. I gave her the same answer that, you know, I, I haven't made a decision, um, but I think that we need change. The the president of the board actually has more power than the mayor um, in the city. And what we haven't seen is a strong legislative agenda coming from the president. Um, what we've seen is basically the board acting as the proxy for the mayor's office and doing whatever the mayor wants rather than coming forth with a real, you know, forward thinking agenda. And, and I think we need some. Somebody in that leadership position that really has that, that forward-thinking view.
0: I just want to say that I've asked the are you running for X office question about 50 times on this show. Yours is probably, times. Yours is probably the most honest and direct answer that I've gotten so far, so congratulations Well, I try to be <laughs>
2: honest and direct. <laughs>
0: <laughs> on that note, um, for all of our stories, STLPublicRadio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Follow Joe on Twitter at
1: J Mannis. That's J M A N N I E S.
0: And how would people follow you on Twitter or any other parts of the World Wide Web?
1: Uh, on Twitter, it is at Megan Aaliyah, which is
2: M E G A N E L L Y I A.
0: We'll be back next time. Until then, so long. Yeah.